Hello, it's Crystal Clear, and I'm bringing you the more Morgulons that you crave. It's Saturday. China's been flying military planes over Taiwan, flipping a big bird at the USA. It's going to get downgraded to the USB, um, or C, or D. Um, and the wonderful news is I still have Morgulons. Oh, wait, that's not the wonderful news. What was the wonderful news? I'm alive! I'm alive! It's alive! And, well, for the most part, except these fucking Morgulons. Okay, today I'm gonna read you a little story. Gather round, children. Actually, I wouldn't recommend this for uh, younger listeners. Um, really, wouldn't recommend more Morgulons, period, or any time uh, with me. And for the adults in the room, uh, stay tuned. It's gonna be a great episode, and thank you for listening. Today is a special episode where I am going to read you a book called Everything I Have is Yours. It's about a lady who's married to a crazy guy with Morgulons. Um, you better hope you don't have everything that I have, folks. But stay tuned. This is a pretty interesting book. Pretty scary um, love story, morgue story. And possibly not a morgue story. I don't know. Also, I'm really tired of seeing Morgulons people depicted in one certain way. Um, so that's why I'm depicting myself, kind of. And have a special friend joining me on today's episode. So let's get it started. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay. All right. Author's note, this is a true story. However, some names and details have been changed. It is not an endorsement of any medical professional diagnosis or treatment. Bad night. I'm trying to get Aaron to sleep. It's close to midnight on a Sunday. The bedroom dark, but for one low lamp, the air purifier purring. He is struggling, crying out. His eyes squeeze shut in pain. I rub his back. I kiss his forehead. It's okay, I whisper. You're okay. Across the bridge of his nose are the freshly flecked scars on his swollen sinuses, like the scratches sleeping babies inflict on themselves with their tiny fingernails. How many nights have I spent rocking babies to sleep? How many hours waiting for the weight of their limbs to fall with the gravity of the dead, then laying them in the crib, sliding my hands out from under their diapered bottoms one knuckle at a time, praying, please, please, please. But Aaron is not a baby. He is my husband. Two hours ago, he was in our older son's room, putting him to bed for the second time. I'd taken the boys to the Apple Harvest Festival. Aaron hadn't been in shape to go, where they had encountered a clown in the funhouse. Later, the memory of the clown kept Nico awake, and Aaron got him to calm down by telling him about the painting of a clown that had hung in his house growing up, how much it had scared him, and how messed up it was that his parents had refused to take it down. Before long, Nico was laughing and then sleeping, and then the two of us stood, as we do most nights, in his doorway and said to each other, what a beautiful boy, and then stood in Henry's doorway and said it again. Now we are in our room. It's the first night of October in Ithaca, New York. 
last week it was in the 90s and the portable fans are still gathered around the room blank-faced needy bearded and dust it's a narrow room once a sleeping porch still poorly insulated at any day now we will need to turn on the heat I'm in my flannel pajamas, wrapped in the bare, slightly sour-smelling duvet, but Aaron is in his underwear, no blanket, no sheet, because even though he's cold, the contact hurts his skin. Did you take your medicine? He plunges his hand into the little basket of orange pill bottles arranged on his nightstand. He knows by size and shape which are the right ones. He rattles out two Seroquel, then two Aleve PMs. Four years ago, he developed degrade esophageal ulcers after a steady diet of ibuprofen. And I help him find the baby blue pills that have spilled onto the bed. His hands are shaking. He chases them with a swig of Smirnoff ice. I try not to worry what the sugar will do to his teeth. Four months ago, he'd been sober for four years. Then he decided that the pain of being inside his own skin was worse than the pain of addiction. And was he really an alcoholic anyway? My sister-in-law was making mojitos that night. She offered Aaron one, and he said yes. And we all laughed about her bad influence, the powers of her mixology. But only Aaron and I understood what we were toasting, what we were risking. Let's take your glasses off, honey. I slid them off his blistered nose and find a place for them beside the bed. There was not a spare inch of space on the nightstand. A tissue box, nasal spray, a drawing pad, three alarm clocks, books upon books, a pencil cup Henry made for him from a frozen orange juice carton in kindergarten last year. His body, his body is seizing up, each wince piling on the last. I don't know what's happening, he cries. I rest my head against his armpit, where I don't think I'll hurt him. Shh, I don't know either. He is having a fit. It is kind of familiar, though I can't be sure. Is it his skin or something deeper? The last two days, his body has issued a red, angry rash, one that evades language as fiercely as it evades diagnosis. Although, what is diagnosis but language? On his left arm above the bird tattoo and below the eye, the eyeball sun tattoo, across the tattoo that says Eleanor, it's more like a third-degree sunburn. The one on his chest and ribs, a new place in recent months, might be called a rash. Doesn't it look like a penis and balls, he asked me earlier today. The one on his right shin, the one that I'm very careful not to rub against in our bed, might best be called a boil. It is faintly blue, the color of the blood inside, though the skin around it is electric pink of infected skin. Both ankles are slightly swollen. It is bad, though not emergency room bad, not even urgent care bad. At least I don't think so. Should I have taken him to urgent care, despite the old fights about it, our tired cycle of neglect and blame? We wouldn't need to go to urgent care if you'd called your doctor for a refill. He needed antibiotics three days ago, but he refused them. Tomorrow, Monday, he has promised he will call his dermatologist for antibiotics, and while he's at it, his psychiatrist for a refill on the Maxalt. Will she prescribe migraine medicine? It's related to the mind, right? He will even call his gastroenterologist, he says, for that long overdue checkup on those ulcers. I will not call any of these doctors. It was part of our pact four years ago after I got into Al-Anon, after I learned the word codependency, pronounced it like a woman with a new language in her mouth. Now we have a new language, every year a little more. The latest is schizophrenia, at least according to the latest psychiatrist. It's a diagnosis he's trying on, a jacket that still needs tailoring. Earlier tonight, from the schizophrenia handbook that hides in the toothpaste drawer, he read me two new words, executive function. I tapped the letters into my phone and read him the definition. A set of mental skills that help you get things done, like managing time, paying attention. We looked at each other eyes wide. It has been a half joke among us for years that Aaron is allergic to finishing things. The dishes, a song, a career, starting things also. The middle part, he's good at that. 
I think of these words as I'm rubbing his back in our bed. Codependency, executive function. Does my husband have schizophrenia? And if so, is it a spousal crime to fail to call the doctor on behalf of your executively dysfunctional husband? Is it like expecting your baby to pick up the phone and dial? He's on his stomach now. Every few seconds, his legs swing back, and then he brings them down hard, one at a time, thumping the mattress. You're kicking the bed again, I say helpfully. Sorry, I know that sucks. He is almost laughing, as anyone might when their body is out of their control. A shaking hand, a foot asleep. I can't help it. He has a long, broad surfboard of a back, a beautiful back. When he was a teenager and surfing all day under the Florida sun, his body tanned and lean. You could count. I've seen pictures. The marbles of his spine. Now it is the back of a 45-year-old man who still lifts weights every day despite the pain. Fuck it. When I am lying beside him in bed, it is a dune, a whole beach between us. It's the only plane of his body that is not covered in tattoos or sores. I watched the tattoo artist put the Eleanor tattoo on his arm. I was 19, half the age I am now. Aaron was 26. In Burlington, Vermont, the city where my parents had fallen in love, I sat in the corner of the tattoo parlor and watched my name appear letter by capital letter. Eleanor, even though he, like my family, called me Nell. So formal and crooked, I was sure. Say something, I willed myself, but it was really, but was it really crooked or was it just my angle? And wasn't it too late anyway? In our bed, he thrashes. He looks as though he's been attacked by a hundred invisible needles. Or is he being attacked by a hundred invisible demons? Are they inside or outside? He always, he's always had his demons, his best friend Derek told me on the phone the night I called him four years ago. I nodded, knowing how much Aaron hated that fucking phrase, like he was an aging rock star on a VH1 documentary. On the bedside table, my phone pings. I turned, I reached to turn off the volume. Beside the phone, splayed face down and open as a book. Part of my mind is still on that book. Part of my mind is scanning my phone. Who is texting at this hour? But I don't pick it up. I put my lips to Aaron's forehead. It's clammy, though his cheeks are hot. Maybe he just has a fever. Maybe he's shivering. Maybe his body is fighting the infection in his limbs. It's almost poignant to me the way his systems continue to rally to fight off their threats despite all the ways they are broken. But the struggling seems deeper. Tonight, it is inside. His skin is burning. But he is burning somewhere else, too. He drives his head into the pillow. Breathe, I say. Don't fight it. I say this with conviction, though I have no idea if it is the right advice or the exactly wrong advice. It's the kind of thing the midwives told me when I was giving birth. Don't fight the labor. Work with your body, not against it. And in fact, my husband reminds me of a laboring woman. The pain, that extraterrestrial, that desperation, the desperation, that whole. Any minute now, he might expel eight pounds of life force. What would it look like, the foreign matter that is fighting so hard to break through his skin? I think of gremlins, which we've just introduced to our kids. I think of Gizmo splashed with water, writhing in anguish, and picture Aaron popping three viscous mogwai out of his back. Pop, pop, pop. What is it with that horror movie goo, the ectoplasm of gremlins, ghostbusters, alien... Last year, in this bed, we binge-watched the first season of Stranger Things, where that goo is nothing less than a portal to another world, the secretion of some dark birth canal that leads to the upside down. I cried when it was over, and I didn't know why. I wasn't just scared. I wasn't just exhilarated. I was devastated. I felt so helpless, so sad. It was the unkillableness of that monster. It would not die. It lurked in the darkness, never showing its face. It went away, and then it came back. And as hard as those kids tried to kill it with shotguns and bear traps and Christmas lights, it returned to haunt them. And now, just when it seemed to be gone, it bubbled up its black tar from that poor boy's throat. The monster was inside him now. 
Here we are, Aaron and I, in the middle of the night, in our upside down. How did we get here? How do we get back? It's bad, Aaron says, his face in the pillow. Breathe, I say, and I can hear him trying. He is trying. It's bad, but not bad, bad. It's not guzzling the NyQuil bad. It's not fighting all night bad or crying all night bad or hallucinating bugs bad or sitting on his hands bad or beating himself up with a baseball bad bad. It's not call our therapist bad. Another night when I don't know better, I might have my phone in my face, rage researching every symptom. Another night he might punch himself in the face. Another night in a cruel and illogical rage, I might smack him in the face. Stop it. Stop doing this to yourself. Wake up. Come back to me. Help. Not hard enough to hurt him, I think, though I will feel the tarry shame in the morning and apologize. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. The worst nights are not the ones where he suffers beside me. The worst nights are the ones where he suffers alone. The worst nights, he sleeps on the couch downstairs despite my begging. I don't want to keep you up. I can tell it's going to be a bad night. Or it's too much. Or I'm fine. Or you didn't sign up for this. The worst nights, I can hear his soft voice down the stairs. It's the early hours of the morning and he's on the phone. For a moment, I let myself hope he's talking to a friend. I let myself worry he's talking to a woman, but I know he has called the suicide hotline. A faceless professional voice on the other end of the phone. And because what I fear more than anything is that my husband will try to kill himself again. And because what I want more than anything is to be the one to save him is the worst kind of betrayal. I go back to our room and sleep alone. I toss and turn, desperate and furious and hurt. Short of saving him, I am reasonable enough to know I can't save him. I want all his pain to myself. Is that too much to ask? Tonight, though, he is in our bed. Tonight, my touch is gentle. I spoon his beautiful back. Stop hunching your shoulders, I say. Let me get in there. He relaxes his shoulders a little. I find the warm crease of his neck. I lay the kisses along his collarbone. Then his shoulders relax some more. He purrs. His feet thump the bed softly. His skin, that tender membrane between inside and outside, what nerve endings is in? Is my mouth reaching and what chemical reaction is happening below the surface? How do my kisses slow the beating of his heart and ease the breathe in and out of his lungs and turn the fretful moan in his chest to the even rasp of sleep? Maybe it's the Seroquel, but I like to think it's love. I slide my left hand out from beneath him and place it on his back, soft, firm. I sigh. Tomorrow morning, I know, we will stand up in the kitchen while the curry heats up, and he'll be warm and solid and upright, and we'll hold each other, and we'll say, I'm sorry it was a bad night. But now, with my left hand on my husband's back, I reach for my book with my right. His snoring is the loveliest sound on earth. Peace has been restored. The monster has been banished. The portal for tonight has been sealed, and I read by the lamplight far longer than I should. Bum, bum, bum. Chapter one. That's all you got? No, there's a new other chapter. You want to hear it? Yeah. Okay. Sick house family. In Nico's backpack and a wrinkled pile of fourth grade homework fractions and energy transfer and Susan B. Anthony, I find a worksheet about feelings. When I feel angry, I can take a deep breath. Nico finds this series boring and babyish and half the blankets are empty or answered with a sloppy, I don't know. Half the blanks are empty. I'm kind of proud of his proud of his bullshit detector, though his dad and I tell him, sometimes you just have to bullshit. But I keep reading. I feel anxious about blank. On the line, he has written three words, sick house family. I swallow. I find him in his bed reading a comic. <laughs> <laughs> I find him in his bed reading a comic book. Nico, I say, trying to keep my voice open, steady. I show him the paper. He takes it, balls it up, and throws it under his bed. Last year in kindergarten with the pencil cup made from the orange juice carton, Henry brought home a drawing of Aaron for Father's Day 
on the other side a worksheet about his dad. My dad is a blank. My favorite thing to do with my dad is blank. His teacher's handwriting completes the blanks. One line says, my dad is really good at putting medicine on his boo-boos. <laughs> Henry asked me in the car, were dad's boo-boos there when I didn't exist? I tell him, yes, he was in my tummy when dad got sick. In the summer of 2011, it was seven month, I was seven months pregnant and on tour for my first novel, leaving Ithaca for a week, then coming home for the weekend, then going out on the road again. Aaron was home taking care of, our, of Nico and our dogs and cats. He texted me pictures of our son asleep in our bed in his Batman pajamas. Maybe it was the stress of solo parenting a three-year-old. Maybe it was the lack of sleep. One night on the phone, he said, I had this weird rash. He texted me a picture. Little red bumps on his back and the back of his arms around his elbow. Weird, I said. Go get it checked out. We both expected it to go away, but he didn't go to the doctor for another few weeks until I was home for good. And by that time, the rash had spread into painful, dime-sized lesions that wouldn't heal. When Henry was born a month later, it had been diagnosed as a staph infection. We had to get special permission for Aaron to be in the delivery room. The lesions spotted his torso, his legs, his concave temples. He was fatigued and he was in pain. He dropped from 163 pounds to 138. In the pictures of him holding our newborn, he is frightfully skinny. For most of my labor, Aaron slept in a chair while I rocked back and forth with contractions in the shower. He in his private pain, I in mine. Aaron's skin didn't heal. It wasn't a staph infection, his GP said, but he wasn't sure what it was. The first dermatologist, the head of dermatology at the State University Hospital, says, Purigo nodularis. Purigo, Purigo nodularis. With such conviction that later Aaron said he looked like he expected a high five. He took a biopsy that turned up nothing. He gave him some steroid creams that didn't help. The second dermatologist said, you say it flares up with stress. Maybe you should look into that and stood to leave. The third dermatologist took another biopsy and confirmed it. Purigo nodularis. It means basically itchy nodules. I'm not sure what those doctors saw under the microscope. Purigo nodularis isn't a bacteria or a virus or a parasite. It's the body's response to scratching, to self-excoriation. That's not true. That might be what it means. I don't know. Purigo nodularis, like people with like lupus get that. Or like autoimmune disorders and stuff. Hold on. Is a chronic inflammatory skin disease where an extremely itchy, symmetrically distributed rash appears most commonly on the arms, legs, the upper back, and or the abdomen. The itch associated with PN is so severe that it often interferes with sleep and psychological well-being. It says it's a genetic and rare disease. Okay. Um, so I don't know what she's talking about causes hard, itchy lumps, nodules to form on the skin. The itching puritis can be intense, causing people to scratch themselves to the point of bleeding or pain. Scratching can cause more skin lesions to appear. The itching is worsened by heat, sweating, or irritation from clothing. In some cases, people with PN have a history of other diseases, including eczema, lymphoma, HIV infection, severe anemia, or kidney disease. The exact cause of PN is unknown. Although scratching is known to cause more nodules to appear, it is unclear what causes the itching to develop in the first place. Diagnosis of the disease is based upon observing signs such as extremely itchy skin with the formation of nodules. In some cases, a skin biopsy is used to confirm the diagnosis. Treatment may include corticosteroid creams, oral medications, cryotherapy, or photochemotherapy. So that's weird. Like, I mean, they have no idea what it comes from. It's associated with lymphoma... HIV, severe anemia. I mean, it's like, so it's completely 
Like, you would only do a biopsy to confirm that it didn't have bacteria, viral, or any other pathogens. I mean, it would be like, because you wouldn't be looking for anything in the histology. Yeah, which is something in itself, I guess. Yeah. Anywho. Um, then. Okay, so. Um, I'm not sure what the doctor saw under the microscope. Perigo nodularis isn't a bacteria or a virus or a parasite. It's the body's response to scratching, to self-excoriation. But he doesn't scratch them. I told the fourth dermatologist, who wasn't a dermatologist but a physician's assistant, but looked like he could play a dermatologist on a soap opera. They just erupt that way, spontaneously. I understand. A lot of people scratch them in their sleep. But his skin doesn't itch. It hurts. Well, he said, not unkindly. You have to understand, 90% of patients with this disease deny itching and scratching. Deny itching, I said, or scratching? Both, he said, and turned to write something on a chart. Then he turned back. I see, scratching, he said, that's true. Most patients don't deny that they itch. As we left, he told Aaron, you got to relax, enjoy life. Some doctors looked at his skin and dismissed it as scratching. Some looked at his skin and dismissed it as drug use. These almost look like track marks. I have to ask, have you used intravenous drugs? One GP looked at a nasty rash on the inside of Aaron's elbow. It looked like he'd been burned with a blowtorch. But over the head of one of our children who sat in Aaron's lap, she whispered, Needles? He closed his eyes. I wanted to hold his pain for him like a purse. Theory one. Needles are the only thing he didn't use. He did do drugs of one kind or another for a very long time. He medicated his feelings. Then he stopped doing drugs, and his feelings burned through his skin. Theory two. A few months after the rash broke out, after the visits to the GP and the dermatologist, we went to an acupuncturist and herbalist, Dr. Chang, who counted Aaron's pulse, examined his sores, and asked him to stick out his tongue. She concluded, too much fire. I made a sound somewhere between a gasp and a laugh. Too much fire. Were there three truer words to describe my husband? Ixera Circle, 1997. Uh, Then she goes back to basically when they meet, I guess. So, so, this guy's got morgues, but it doesn't sound like morgues. Right, and there's like a... But he's saying, but later on she says there's fibers and stuff. So, when performing an image search of skin disease, rash, or lesions, it is best to hold your head as far from the screen as possible, which, depending on the length of your arms, is approximately three feet. If possible, close one eye, squeeze the other one shut until you almost can't see out of it, then scroll fast and don't stop until you've seen all that you cannot unsee. There will be children, just so you know. They live in another country, another time. Their faces aren't even faces anymore. Compare your husband's lesions to the lesions on the screen. That one's too crusty, that one's too oozy, that one's too uniform, too stipled, too oblong, too yellow. Conclude that there is no one on the planet with your husband's disease. He is both too original and too damaged to share in anyone else's symptoms. He is above and below others suffering, except for the children whose suffering you scroll by as fast as you can. This is six years ago when it started. Watch him go out to the shitty little AstroTurf porch to smoke and pet the stray cats he's adopted, Prego and Lobster. Count the hours he's out there. When he comes in smelling of smoke with a Ziploc sandwich bag full of things coming out of the sores on his body, examine them from a distance of approximately three feet. They look like tiny twigs, like something he might have found on a mulch playground or pulled off the wings of a moth. They look like dust, lint, thread. They look like splinters and ash and bone. Some of them are white. Some of them are red and blue. Sometimes you think you see these things on or in your husband's skin. Mostly you see them once they've already been collected. 
Watch him tape them to a post-it notes. Watch him slip them into matchboxes. You have no idea what they are. Find them on the coffee table in the tool drawer taped to the inside of the kitchen cabinet. Look, he will say, look at this. He holds a tiny magnifying glass to a knuckle. Suddenly, he is a person who owns many types of magnifying glasses, <laughs> loops, scopes. You peer through the even tinier glass within the glass. Do you see it? Do I see what? I don't know what. Something right there. Stay still. Do you see it? I don't know, honey. I see skin. That's not skin. I mean, it's a sore. It's not normal skin, but it's skin, I think. What is normal? What is foreign? Best to nod or shrug or both. Best to say, I don't know. It's his mother who first tells you about Morgulon's disease. For years, she lived in New York, but she's in Santa Fe now in a little adobe house filled with crystals and herbs. She has not been much of a mother to her husband, but she sends gifts to the kids and on holidays, books, birdhouses, cowboy hats, and she tucks in little salves and satchels for her son, sensing perhaps that some looming malady. She is either supernaturally attuned to the body or she knows nothing. You're not sure. Look it up, she says, and spells it M-O-R-G-E-L-L-O-N-S. Joni Mitchell has it. I'm sending you some emu oil. You look it up and there it is. The microscopic fibers blown up to 10 times their size appear on the screen in full color as clear as the red and blue wires on a car battery. In form after form, patients complain of the same symptoms that have plagued your husband. The pain, the fatigue, the stubborn skin lesions that appear overnight and sprout mysterious fibers in all the colors of the rainbow. Oh my God, you both say, staring at the screen. The lesions look exactly like Aaron's. You read on. You can't stop reading. It is the jackpot you've been waiting for. There's an interview with Joni Mitchell. Quote, I have this weird incurable disease that seems like it's from outer space, she says. Fibers in a variety of colors protrude out of my skin like mushrooms after a rainstorm. They cannot be forensically identified as animal, vegetable, or mineral. Yes, you think. You can't resist the imagery, the flattery. Your husband is without category, paranormal, an outlier. There is the Charles E. Holman Foundation for Morgulon's Disease page. There is the story again and again of the mother who named the disease, who re revived it from the 17th century letter from the English physician Sir Thomas Brown, describing an endemial distemper of little children in France. Endemial distemper. You don't know what this means, but it sounds like your husband. <laughs> <laughs> but then on page after page is doctor after doubting doctor who say that Morgulon's disease is a fiction. The symptoms are in the patient's heads. There was the Washington Post article, the CNN coverage, and finally, in January 2012, the CDC study, which concludes, again, try to read the words as far from the screen as possible, that these patients don't have fibers in their skin or bugs or bacteria. They have delusional parasitosis. The recommendation, psychiatric care, antidepressants. Notice your stomach dropping. Take a deep breath. You try to read the skepticism with skepticism. Look at your husband. He's not well. He's not himself. And yet, look at the things his body is producing. He didn't make them up. You must make a choice. Are you with the deluded patients or the unfeeling doctors? You are a writer and a professor of fiction. You have you love a good sci-fi monster. You love, too, a good underdog. Your imagination believes the world is bigger than what we know of it. But you are also a professor of rhetoric and composition. You believe in science. You believe in research. What is it you're always telling your students about supporting their arguments with evidence? As it happens, your husband is the one to decide for you. He makes his choice quickly, chastened. He does not want to be with the crazy people. He stops collecting the fibers. He throws away the quart-sized bottles of emu oil that have sat unopened in the cabinet because he definitely does not want to be with his mother. Still, his skin doesn't heal. Knowing what it is doesn't help. The only thing that seems to help, alcohol. 
You need to relax, honey, your father tells him one day when he comes to visit and pours Aaron a glass of bourbon. He hasn't been much of a drinker since you met him, but he accepts the glass. And then another, he doesn't love bourbon, but he falls back in love with gin. The quart bottles begin to appear in the cabinet in the recycling bin on the kitchen counter. Blue gin, the color of mouthwash. Watch him relax. Watch the sores fade to rosy scars. Watch his belly stretch wide and hard. Watch him sleep on the couch, on the cot he has set up downstairs. Give him some space. Sleep in your bed with your baby, nursing him all day and night. Nurse him while you have sleep, while he has sleeps. Watch the wall grow between you and your baby's father, too tall to scale. Stand in the kitchen with your husband, almost without words. Agree that you need to return to couples counseling. The first time in Charlottesville didn't really count. You choose the first man's name you see in the yellow pages, Stu. On his voicemail recording, he has a voice like a game show host. In the waiting room, there is a chocolate-covered suede love seat, a bottle of cherry almond jurgens, a well-maintained selection of People magazines, and more M&M paraphernalia than you have ever seen. Inside the office are M&M pillows, M&M candy machines, M&M cups, and salt shakers and picture frames. Your homework was to bring a list of 10 things you like about the other and 10 things you're unhappy about. First item on your first list is he makes me laugh. The first item on your second list is chaos. You can barely articulate further. It is written on a sheet of your son's Spider-Man notepaper. Who knows if it helps? You keep going. Your insurance doesn't cover acupuncture, but praise be, it covers every cent of couples counseling. Instead, you spend the money on a sitter every Wednesday at 3 o'clock. Stu has a salt and pepper beard, a Queen's accent, white sneakers, and a gold chain. On the stereo, he plays the Grateful Dead. He tells you he was a medic at Woodstock. He definitely did mad drugs. Your husband jokes in the car on the way home because doing mad drugs is something you still joke about. Watch your husband drink. Watch your husband sleep on the cot. Watch your husband grow so big that one night he breaks it. Watch him rage and cry in shame. Watch The Bachelor. The sexiest thing about The Bachelor is that he owns a vineyard. Drink red wine, but just a little. Your son is nursing always at your open bathrobe. You have an excuse because suddenly your mother is dying of lung cancer. Your mother who smoked a pack a day while pregnant with you. A little glass of wine can't be so bad. Uh-huh. Is that all you have? That's all we got, people. So it's funny because I think that that's really interesting that she brings up the fact that, you know, he in discovering the Morgulans paradox, you know, that it's like there's all these people that have the exact, these are finally the lesions, these are the objects. But then at the same time, you discover that like the scientists and the doctors are like, no, they're crazy. And people kind of choose one path or the other, you know, it's like. Some people are like, I don't want to be crazy. I'm going to start taking Seroquel and like, you know, just try to like figure out a way because it, you know, they just want it to stop. But it's like, but the lesions don't go away, you know? Yeah. I I mean, you hear about kids where it does for some people. It doesn't though. Like I've never heard that. Where have you heard that? Um, I could show you podcasts. I would just be curious. Like, I mean, Abby, for instance, like she takes a lot of. Uh, psychotropic medications, but she still gets Morgulans. Yeah, so I don't, that's why I don't think everybody's necessarily identical. I mean, everybody in that movie, I actually, I am starting to believe that delusional parasitosis is a fake diagnosis. That everybody who's been diagnosed with delusional parasitosis actually has some kind of physical illness. And most of the do- most of them say that they say that they believe that there was something, and then that experience gave rise. Well, I don't know about that, but usually that's not the way things go. Like if you have, like for instance, I had ringworm one time that I got from a kid at the hospital, and I put you know medication on it. It responded the way you would normally expect it to. 
it went away and I never thought about it again. Yeah, but I would argue that it's far more likely that instead of that person suddenly becoming delusional, it's like they still have an infection. Um, yeah, that could be too. Right? I, yeah, I'm sure both things happen. That's, I think it, I think everything that can happen happens.